My name is Eric Smith, and I'm one of the pastors over on the east side. If I haven't met you, um, it is good to be with you this morning. Um, we're going to look at a couple uh, texts today, and I'll just say by way of intro, if you saw the email, you know that there's two things following this service. For some of you, the pizza lunch is maybe the important thing, um, and you're welcome. Yeah, I'm good. We're glad that you're here. Uh, there will be pizza after this. For many of us, the congregational meeting, to see the future, just to get caught up on what's happening is certainly the important thing. Uh, I don't know that I can compete with either of those, but I just want to acknowledge them here at the beginning. I want to take us into a couple passages that look at us as a church. My goal is to focus us on who we are in Jesus Christ. Now, I'll just say at the beginning, there may be some things that I say that, that, that might allude to the congregational meeting coming up, uh, but I am not uh, preparing us for a specific event. I actually think as good as pizza is and as important as the meeting is, I think you actually came here to be focused on Jesus Christ. So my goal is to put Jesus Christ in front of us. Because without him, we are nothing. We are at risk of showing some colors, some sides of us we don't want. But in Jesus, we can walk in ways that please him. Through his power and his indwelling spirit in us, we can endure all things. Now, even as I say this, I'm not alluding to things coming up, okay? So that was just a little bit of a test. But our focus this morning is on Jesus Christ. I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Open up to Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at Paul's conversion. But before we do, and to set us up and to set our focus upon Jesus, I want to ask you this question. If I were to say, sit with you and, and say, will you... Tell me about the God you worship. What words would you use to describe him? Think of a few of those right now. You might have some passages of scripture that come to mind. You might have experiences with him that come to mind. And words around that. But I ask you that to, to talk about the God that you worship. Because what you think in your mind about God does show up in how you live your life. Does that make sense? What you think in your mind about who God is shows up in your life. That's not because you and I get to create God. There is a God out there that we need to conform our lives to. But our minds at times, many times, some of the time, can veer away from who God is and our actions can show it. Let me give you an example of this before we get into Acts chapter 9. When I was young and growing up, there was a time that I sinned. Yeah, you can... <laughs> The Lord knows where I'm going with this, so he's not going to strike me down quite. No, he, I'll just share one of the times that I sinned. 
when I was in high school, uh, uh, I was a regular church goer. My family went to church regularly. We grew up, for those, some of you have heard this, I grew up in rural Michigan and we attended a small United Methodist church. And I wish I could say the gospel was presented there every week. You have already heard the gospel read. You have already heard the gospel sung. You have been a part of it. I did not grow up in a church like this. My church said, you need to be like Jesus. That's not all bad. Be like Jesus and be kind. Be good to the poor. Now, those things aren't wrong. They just sort of missed something that was going wrong in here, in my heart. It's called sin. And I needed Jesus as my Savior. There was this... Uh, day where I'm, I have in mind this particular sin that I committed. I won't mention what it was, but it, it would, I would put it in the bigger category, something that's mentioned in Scripture. And what I want to get to is not so much my sin, but how I reacted to it. I began to negotiate with God. Now, I don't know how much you know about God or how much you know about me, but you probably know just enough to know I am not in a position to negotiate with God. Because I have nothing to offer God that he needs. That he needs. Now there are certainly things he rejoices in. You know, the angels rejoice when we confess our sins. But on this day, I didn't confess my sin. This, but I, I was telling people, I'm a Christian. This is me. I was telling people I was a Christian. I went to church. I was trying to be like Jesus in some ways, but I wasn't. And here, instead of confessing my sin, I said, God, how about you don't let me suffer consequences from this sin and I'll obey you as much as I can for the rest of my life. Um, Like I said, I didn't have a whole lot to offer God, and what I offered him there was not what he wanted. Does he want my life? Does he want yours? Absolutely. He wants us as living sacrifices. He wants us to lay down our lives for him. But it's not me in my power, it's me in his power. It's not me saying, God, I'll do better, I'll do better. It's me saying, I'm sorry, God, I have sinned against you. Strengthen me, forgive me, and by your strength, I'll walk in your ways. I bring that up to say I had a view of God in my mind. I believed something about who God was, and I acted accordingly. I told people I was a Christian, but when I sinned, I didn't confess, I negotiated A.W. Tozer has written this, and some of you are familiar with his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And very early on in that book, he says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So I want us to put our minds toward who God is this morning. You also know, I, I, I imagine if you don't, here's some great news. The scripture most clearly and God most clearly in history has shown himself in the person of Jesus Christ. 
three places in the New Testament we are told this. If you want to see the invisible God, look to Jesus. Jesus is the, the radiance of God. He is the exact imprint or nature of God. And so I want to take us there. I want to take us to Jesus Christ. And one of the places, as I was preparing this week, I thought, I, I think I'm going to go to the Gospels. I'm going to bring out a few things. But where I ended up was right here, Jesus' encounter with Paul in the book of Acts chapter 9. To the men who gathered to study this week, I'll just say, um, sorry. Uh, you studied the scriptures, and that was very good, but you thought you were studying the scriptures I was going to preach on, but when I gave you the scriptures, things changed on my end. You didn't know I was going to chapter 9, but I hope you had a great time in 1 John. That's, <laughs> there are beautiful, and Romans chapter 8 uh, was where you spent some time too, so beautiful passages, wonderful, you're better for it. Uh, but just don't wait for me to this morning to get back to 1 John, because I, I don't... I, I'm not planning to go there. Will you follow along? I'm going to jump in. We have uh, the Apostle Paul here still going by his, his Jewish name, Saul. Let me, read the first, uh, let me read the first nine verses here of chapter nine. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder, against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened... He saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saul is on his road. He's, he's headed to Damascus. He's intending to do what he has already done. If you look back just to, just to the beginning of chapter 8 with me, we get where Luke tells us, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, tells us a little bit of what Saul is doing. And I'm going to read these first three verses of chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. That was Stephen, the stoning of, of, of this great Christian and deacon Stephen, Saul approved of that. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison Saul was acting on what he believed. 
He had a view of God in his mind, and he thought, I'm right, this is who God is, and therefore he wants me to punish those who worship someone else. But when God showed up to him on the road and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He, he had enough sense to know that this, this is coming from someone. Not, what he knew at that moment, we don't know. But I would imagine, as Jesus can speak directly to our hearts, that Saul had some sense of where this was coming from, and yet he didn't know. He claimed to know God. He was acting on behalf of God and what he thought was right, but he was wrong. Jesus shows up to him and he says, who are you? And Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul had, at some time before this, it doesn't seem like much time had passed between chapters 7 and, and 8 and 9, but Saul or Paul, I'll go back and forth here because we're kind of in between in terms of what he's called and what we're used to calling him. He's ravaging the church. He's going door to door looking for Christians, men, women. He's yanking them, dragging them out of their house, probably with a band of other men with him, and putting them in prison. And now he's moving his, his enterprise out beyond Jerusalem and taking it now to Damascus. He's got the letter in his hand from the high priest. He's got permission to do this, and he's looking for all the followers of Jesus. And on the way, Jesus meets him. Now, it's interesting because there are many ways to, to, to introduce people to Jesus and call them to faith. It might be a description of there's God and here's you, and between the two is a huge chasm. How are you going to get across? Jesus is the only way. It's kind of this bridge illustration that some ministries have, have put out. All of us fall short, Paul will, will later write, and, and, and none of us can reach the glory of God. None of us can negotiate with God. None of us can bring enough good deeds to God there are many ways to talk about the good news of what Jesus did, but it's interesting here. Jesus just says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Get up, go into the town, and I'll, you'll be told what you are to do. Jesus says, you are persecuting me. Jesus our eyes are on Jesus. I want to focus on the words that he has here. Saul, you are persecuting me. Who is Saul persecuting? Jesus. Who is Saul persecuting? The church. Who is Saul persecuting? Jesus. Who is Saul persecuting? The church. When the church is persecuted, Jesus is persecuted. Jesus so connects himself with you that if you are persecuted, if you are hurting, if you are joyful, Jesus is fully connected 
with all that you are going through. For all of us in here who have called out to him, who have had this conversion experience, hopefully not these words, stop persecuting me. Hopefully, let me show you my love and forgiveness and kindness and mercy. Repent of your sins, come follow me and I'll give you new life. Hopefully we experience something like that. But for all of us who have become Christians, who follow Jesus, this is how intimately Jesus sees his relationship with you. It's really interesting to picture this Paul on the road, on the dirt, on the ground, now blind, having seen this, breathing out threats and murder, we're told, and now confronted by Jesus, and later on saying things like this. As he writes to the Colossians, Listen to what he has to say about the connection between Jesus and the body. I imagine this is a lesson that Paul picked up very quickly. Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice, this is Paul, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. For the sake of Jesus' body, that is, the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about the different body parts and the different gifts, Paul says this, chapter 12, verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And here's my thought for us today is Jesus so connects himself to believers, to the church, that when the church is persecuted, he says, I am persecuted. He later inspires this, this man, Saul, Paul, hey, let people know I'm the head, the church is my body. I'm the head, the church is my body. That's how connected we are. Jesus sees his relationship with you that intimately. Do you see your relationship with him that intimately? Do you ever leave your house without your body? I guess if, if anybody raised their hand, maybe the elders can come forward and, and just we can take a time of prayer uh, for that person. No, because I'm, I mean, sometimes we joke, right? Like our heads are somewhere else or something like that. And we feel like that. but our heads, our bodies are connected where we go. We're all together. Jesus is the head. You are part of his body. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't go away from you, and he doesn't go away from us. You see, the church is made up of individuals, as Paul tells the church in Corinth. And if you've read Corinthians, you know this was a church with many issues and many challenges. And Paul tells them, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So interestingly, we all sit here as individuals and at the same time as members. 
We even use that word in, in churches that, that you can pursue membership and say, I'm not, just, I'm not just attending here. I'm committed not to this place, but to these people. Because the church, as you know, are these people in this room. And thank you for those of you who are joining us today and, and visiting. The church is all the believers that God has called to himself and made clean through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But this is how the church gets expressed locally. We come together in groups. And we say, this is the group I'm a part of. Why? Because it's really hard for you and me to love the church universally. We love specific people. We can pray for the ends of the earth and Christians on the other side of the world. And those, and those kids that I hope you go visit that table for compassion, those kids all over the world, you can stand there. Even if you don't, even if you don't sponsor them, though I, I'm going to follow up with Craig and say I encourage you to do that. My family and I enjoy doing that. But just pick up those pictures and pray for them. You, through our triune omnipresent God can bless them by praying for them, though they're on the other side of the world. But tangibly, on a day-by-day -day basis, what God calls us to is to practically love and be involved in a local body of believers like you guys are here. Now you are the body. And Jesus is the head of us. Jesus is our head do you see yourself as intimately connected with Jesus as that? I imagine on, on good days, if you're like me, yeah. That's the truth. Jesus is the head. I am a part of his body. He has brought me. We are. I am one in Christ. I am united with him. And on some days, my thinking may try to go back to that little negotiator. That's not the gospel. That's why I need to be back in the word. That's why I need to be back with the church to sing the songs, to hear the word preached. In my case, to preach the word where I get to spend some time in it during the week. You are a part of Christ's body and so are all the other believers here. Jesus loves the local church. He is the head of Frack West. He is the head of our church. Jesus doesn't just associate himself with the church. And I think sometimes if, um, I haven't brought myself to do this, but some of you like to put stickers all over things. You put them on your car, you put them on your water bottles. You put them on your, on your computers. And, and as I like actually looking at those, so thank you, because they're, they're interesting. It's like, oh, places you've been or things you're interested in, teams you like. Uh, you like coffee shops. Great. I do too, so I usually see all those stickers. What church you're a part of, all these sorts of things end up as these outward expressions. And we show all these different sort of associations, or here's what I like. I'm not going to, like, turn that on you. Okay, that's just... 
Jesus has one sticker. It's the church. He is singularly focused. Why? Because his father is singularly focused on redeeming a fallen people, enemies, wretches. That's you and me, by the way, prior to coming to Christ. And making us into a beautiful bride. But to be a beautiful bride, we need to walk in his strength. And we need to be like him. The body is going to follow the head. The church needs to follow Jesus. In everything we do, just like I told people I was a Christian and misrepresented him. Just as Saul said, I'm a follower of God, but misrepresented him. We as the church get to show people who Jesus really is. We get to do it right. We get to do it by loving one another. Saul's first introduction to Jesus, at least very personally, he had certainly heard about him, was this. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you hurting my body? If you look ahead in the passage, I think this is interesting. It's just worth noting Saul does this. He goes into the city. He needs some help for three days. He neither eats nor drinks. And I got to imagine that was a three-day retreat. for Maybe it was an advance. <laughs> if he was part of frack, he would advance. I imagine for three days, apart from some sleep, some dozing off that happened there, he spent a lot of time getting to know Jesus. Because in the next paragraph, Jesus is going to talk to this disciple that we don't know a whole lot about, Ananias, and he's going to say, there's this man, Saul, who's praying to me. Jesus, uh, Saul's conversion, though he maybe didn't have it all worked out, he had some things worked out very quickly because he's going to become an evangelist for Jesus in this very same town. Knowing there are others like him who want to seek and destroy the church, he now becomes part and an ambassador for the risen Lord Jesus. But check out Ananias' response in verse 10. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. What was Saul's response? Who are you? What's Ananias' response? Here I am. Do you know Jesus that intimately? Are you spending time with him as he calls you, as he speaks to you, that you say, like great characters in the Old Testament, like Ananias right here, here I am, Lord. He knew who was calling. He knew his voice. There was no question. There was no, give me an introduction. And he was a little bit concerned about the mission that God sent him on. Because he knew this hunter of himself was coming to town. But Ananias obeys. 
we are the body of Christ. We can represent him and we can represent him well. And the one thing I want to say as we look to represent Jesus as his own, as his body, is to share with him the love he has for those people sitting around you, for the church. How committed are you to this body? Meaning, how committed are you to one another right here? I want to move to John chapter 17 and look at one other passage with you. As we focus on who Jesus is, what does he love, what should we love, what should we about be about, let's look at his prayer as John records it in chapter 17 of his gospel. He records this long prayer that John got to hear shortly before Jesus is arrested and crucified. Shortly before Jesus burst forth from the grave by the power of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, that same Spirit, by the way, that is at work in you, Jesus takes some time to talk to his Father. And we get to listen in. I want to drop down. He's going to pray for his disciples. He's going to thank God for for uh, all the work that he's done, he's going to ask him now to glorify him in this, in this final hour here. And he wants to give glory to the Father in that. But jump in at verse 20 with me. I do not ask for these only. Referring to those 11 now disciples that were in the upper room with him, that were traveling with him to the garden. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let's go down and read through the rest of the chapter. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Thank you, Jesus, for this prayer. I think here he, he prays, this is the spot where we would say, that Jesus prays for you. He's, I don't, Jesus saying, I'm not just praying for these 11. I'm going to pray for everyone now, Father, who's going to believe the message about me and about you through them. And so for all of us, then Jesus prays. He then goes back and talks about his relationship and how he is with these 11 
But even that, we can extrapolate and say this too, this relationship has come down to us because we see it elsewhere in the New Testament. We see it unfolding in the book of Acts. And it's simply this, that you worship a God who wants to be with you and in you and is in all of us who come to faith in Jesus Christ. Thank God. You don't worship a God who sits far away and who judges you and who looks down on you and says, gosh, if you would just clean yourself up, then maybe I'd be proud of you. That is not God. That is not the one who went to the cross and for you, in obedience to his father, wanted to make known to a fallen world that anyone who comes to him in repentance, in humility, is accepted. We see that in this passage as Jesus says, here's how this is all working. I don't ask for these also, but for those who believe in me, uh, believe through, believe me through their word, that they would all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Did you catch all that? There's a oneness that God wants the church to be. He wants his disciples to have this oneness. He wants us to have this oneness, not a fake artificial oneness like we just get along, we don't argue about anything. Oneness through love, through patience, through kindness, respecting one another wanting the best for one another, being a body knit and held together in the spirit, building itself up, Paul writes in Ephesians, building itself up in love, being like our Lord who gave himself up for us. We worship a triune God. We don't just worship the single solitary God. Some of you have read this book, and I've been benefited by it as well. Michael Reeves wrote this book, Delighting in the Trinity. And he does a good job of highlighting uh, that we worship a triune God, and here's the difference it makes. And he often compares it, one, to the atheists, and two, to to kind of a, a single God of Islam. And he says this, and this has really got me thinking. I'll share this with you. If we worshiped a God who was single, solitary, all by himself, and and for however long he lived before he created the world, he must have been pretty content living by himself, and now he has a world of people like us. I don't know about you, but how interested could that God be in a world filled with people like us? But when you get a triune God, a father who loves his son, a son who loves his father, that's the relationship we see over and over and over again, especially in the book of John, but throughout the Gospels, and then shown back to us, and we're taught how to live in light of that, and and more of it's unfolded as we go through the New Testament. But we see it here. The son saying, Father, you're in me. I'm in them. And just as you and I are one, we want to give them the strength to be 
one. You don't have a stingy God who's reluctant to come towards you and to give you of himself. You have a God that loves to give and give and give and show you who he is. If we read the beginning, Jesus would say, Father, I want all these to have eternal life. And then he's going to give another phrase. He's going to say, this is eternal life, to know you and Christ Jesus. The better we know God, the more we can be like him. In this passage, Jesus is saying, Father, I, I, want, I, I, want, I want our people, I, I want your people, I want my bride. It doesn't use that, that word here. But I want the church to be one with us. Just as we're one, I want them to be like that. And so we're not just going to tell them to do it. We're going to fill them and empower them to do it. So church, we walk in that. We walk in him, in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is Christ in us, which is the love of God poured out into us, as Paul will write in Romans chapter 5. But here's another thing. Coming back to this idea, we are always telling others about Jesus. He wants us to be one so that, so that the world may know that the Father sent the Son. Now, do you know how, how John is using the word world here? He's not talking about all these people that live perfectly, that are all clean, that, that are just, just ready to be belong to God. He's talking about the world as in all of those people, all of us, trapped by sin, handed down by our, by our first parents, following the ways of Satan, whether we recognize it or not, walking in Satan's kingdom rather walk than walking in God, Jesus says, I want the church to be one so that others who aren't yet in the church, that they will know that if they believe in me, they will have eternal life. This is the heart of God. It's so outward going. It's, it's, Father, let's do this in them so that more people, so that more people. Here he's praying about the original 11, and he just, you just see the heart of God. Let's, worldwide, let's get this thing all over. Let's, let's, through the church and the oneness, let them see our oneness. Let them know, Father, that you sent me for their salvation, for their life, for their joy, for their forgiveness to be my body. And to do what I do in loving one another. Jesus will go on and he will say this again and again. The glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one. Even as we are one. I in them. I in them. And you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. We came here this morning to look at Jesus. More than anything else, you came this morning to look at Jesus. And I want to highlight this last phrase here before we wrap up. 
Sometimes these very small words pack a huge punch in these sentences. There's two words here in English that translate one word in the Greek. Even as. Even as. I'm in verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can put your name in there. Loved them, even as, even as you loved me. Do you understand that God loves you with the same love he loved Jesus Christ? If you let that sink in, you won't be a little negotiator with God like I was. You certainly won't be a persecutor of the church like Paul was. You will be a beautiful representation to the world of who Jesus Christ is. When you accepted the gift of salvation, maybe you signed up for more than, than you realized at the time. Because sometimes we make the gospel pretty small. Just get saved. Come to faith, and we become an ambassador. And a part of you representing Jesus is how you treat each other in here. How will we do today? How will we do this week? You have the love of God and the power of God. Let's love like God loved you. And let's give him all the glory we possibly can. Let me pray for us. Father, this is amazing. You love us even as. Just like you love Jesus. It is a challenge for us to, to think that we are like him, and yet we see in these two passages how he views us. He sees us as his body. He claims us. He is singularly focused on us. He cares about us, and he calls us to be one. Let us have the mind of Christ. Let us be like our King, our Lord, our Savior, our brother, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for your good in our lives, for today, for tomorrow, for however many days and years you give to us. You have done so much for us. We want you to receive all the glory. So let us be a people, a church that loves in the way that we looked at here so that there would be a oneness. kindness, a patience, a thinking of the interests of others and not just of the interests of our own, of humility. Father, do what you have promised here to do. We need you. We need you. Again, we seek to glorify Jesus. Use us towards that end by loving well, being
the beautiful bride of Christ for your glory, in your power, for the good of the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.